over the next good few weeks is the, the development and the maintaining of meaningful relationships. The format or the structure of these particular classes will involve a lot of discussion in the areas in, in the areas of husband-wife relationships, but a lot of the material that we're going to discuss, as, as it will become clear, one will come to realize that a lot of this uh, material is relevant to any kind of a relationship between any two individuals, and is certainly very important for people to take into account before beginning to invest all of that time, energy, emotion, and everything else that we sometimes do into relationships. <clears throat> Talking about this subject of developing and maintaining meaningful relationships, I think that the, the, um, the aspect that comes to our minds and to our, to our hearts more than anything else is most probably the fact that relationships and certainly a few meaningful ones, and hopefully in married life one meaningful one, is something which is extremely, it's, it's, uh, it's of extreme importance to a human being. Like many other things in life, the greater the joy in its success, the greater the pain, unfortunately, is in its failure. And too often many of us through one circumstance or another, have not necessarily felt the joy of that meaningful relationship, though have felt the frustration and the disappointment of a relationship that could have been, or should have been, or shouldn't have been, and I was attempting to make, and failed. And I think that one of the most important things from which we should begin our discussions is to try to set uh, an attitude, try to set a mindset for the discussions that we're going to have. These are the kinds of discussions that most people come into with a certain amount of baggage, with a certain amount of defense systems, well, it wasn't my fault, and there are going to be many things that I'm going to say over the different weeks that people are going to immediately relate to themselves and might make them feel uncomfortable. So either Rabbi Kersner is wrong, or it wasn't really my fault for a different reason. And I think that the most important thing about these discussions that we're going to have is not so much how to rate ourselves in terms of our past, but to possibly try to absorb some of this information and integrate some of this information so that wherever we are, right now, or wherever we are entertaining being in relationships in the future, that we could be, so to speak, forewarned of what it is that a relationship needs to work. What is the chemistry of the relationship? How do I know when a relationship is right? How do I know when something is wrong in a relationship? How do I know how to, to modify or to correct or to adjust certain factors might, that might be deficient in relationships? And very often not having the answers and at the same time going through a lot of pain usually creates a situation where a person either goes panicky or acts out of a tremendous amount of pain or defen very defensive 
and very often makes the situation worse simply because they don't have at hand an approach on how to understand what's going on, how to communicate what the problem is, and certainly not how to solve the problem afterwards. So I think that the important thing that we have to do is we have to look at these discussions as the ingathering of a certain amount of information that will make us more keenly aware of what's going on as relationships develop so that we could avoid some of the pitfalls, some of the trappings, and that we should learn how to grow within the context of the relationship, which is really the theme for tonight's, for tonight's class. The idea that people have, and I'm going to go through a number of attitudes that people have developed for themselves, so that we should know everything. We should put it all out on the table. That we should all know what kinds of feelings we're all aware of when we come to relationships. There are those that after having failed in various relationships or just not having made it in certain relationships, just tell themselves, well, it won't really be. And you have to be that hero that walks across the earth, not really getting exactly what it is that you really like anyway. It's not available, or I can't find it, or it's not worth the pain to look for that particular kind of relationship. And therefore, I will, in the Hebrew language, it's referred to as being mistapek bemuet. I'll try to be happy with less in life. Now, obviously, this attitude is to a certain degree, emotionally, it is a denial. And in reality, a person does suffer in this kind of an attitude. Because while the person says to himself, I'll be mistapek bemuet, I'll try to just go through life and tell myself, well, you just can't have the utopian relationship, people look and they run in many, many different directions to at least entertain themselves so that they don't die from the pain of not having that relationship. So the idea of a person saying to themselves, I'll be mistopic with listen, it's just not coming my way and finished, I, I'll just let go, and so on and so forth, is really not truthful because the reality of the human being is, is that he needs and he thirsts and he yearns for that relationship. And if he doesn't get it one way, no matter what kind of sour grape philosophy or whatever have you he tries to create for himself, it's not going to work. The thirst and the yearning remains, and the person remains frustrated and has to find some outlet for that frustration. There are, other, there are other attitudes as well that we carry around with ourselves in regards to relationships. One of them is that I know everything that is to be known about how to create a relationship. It's the other person that's missed the boat. And you can't change people. So I just got stuck. So either I run away from the relationship or I just swallow hard and live with it for the duration, if it's waiting until children grow up and get married or whatever, whatever it might be, until which time it becomes much wiser to separate later on in life. But the idea that my situation is hopeless because the other individual doesn't have any way of comprehending where I'm coming, for, coming from, and therefore I'm stuck with a situation that can't change. I must tell you that very often the attitude that I'm stuck in a situation that really, really can change, while this might be true in certain situations, 
very often we haven't tried a lot of different things which are available to us in relationships before we've made that decision. And hopefully by the time that we're finished with these with the, this group of lectures, we will come up with a lot of good ideas of how to nurture a relationship that we think is so so poor and so far gone that there is nothing to retrieve from it at all. <clears throat> I think that uh, as well that it's important also to think about one thing which is very important and that is that one of the um, totally incorrect attitudes that we have and maybe this is really the place to start from one of the totally incorrect attitudes that we have about relationships is that the definition of the relationship is like a scorecard how many times am I right how many times is the other person right and if I'm right I'm going to put my foot down and if the other person's right they're going to put their foot down and anything that speaks of compromise or anything like that is an indication of weakness. So we have two mindsets when we come into relationships. One, that the definition of what happens in the chemistry of relationships is who's right and who's wrong. And by darn it, if I'm right, I'm going to stick to my position. And any notion after I'm convinced that I'm right to compromise is only an indication of a character of a jellyfish. Very weak, okay, and that you're foregoing that which is right. And what I very often tell people that come in terms of trying to get counseling in marriage situations where there are problems, I usually start off with telling them the following thing. Going to sleep at night, turning over in bed alone, knowing, rocking yourself to sleep with the lullaby of righteousness does not help anything. The fact that you can go to sleep knowing that you're right, but alone, is a very, very painful experience. And it's an experience that very often feeds itself in terms of, of tremendous depression and tremendous frustration. Because the more right that I convince myself I am, the more resentful and angry I am that it's not working the way it should, because after all, I'm right, so it should work by the way I understand that it should work. And the feeling of being alone is one that is very, very difficult to deal with. In one way or the other, it's difficult to deal with. And therefore, we have to start, we have to start from a place in terms of relationships of understanding that the issue really isn't right and wrong. That's not what the issue is. The issue is learning how to live with another individual, learning what another individual is about, understanding another individual, learning to live with another individual, and right and wrong is good for the battlefield. Right and wrong is good in a deb school debate. Right and wrong is not what creates a home. Now that might sound very peculiar, and hopefully through this evening we'll try to explain that a lot better. And now let's jump in. What were we doing till now, right? All right, let's jump in. Let's start, <clears throat> let's start with the idea of false expectations. What do I mean? What I mean is that very often a lot of the problems that come up 
in terms of a relationship have a lot to do with expectations. Now, let's talk for a moment from the man's perspective because I think that to a certain extent, while there are always exceptions, I think that men are more culpable of this particular behavior than women are. The notion of the man entertaining marriage. So let's say he's even coming from a biblical perspective. So he opens up to the beginning of Genesis, and in the beginning of Genesis it says the following, It is not good for man to be by himself. So I look at the verse and I say, well, if, if God says that it's not good to be by yourself, who am I to argue? It's not good, it's not good. And therefore I will make a helpmate for him. Now, a person looking at this, a person looking at this verse says, and mind you, this is more common to men than to women, in a general sense, a man says, fine, the Torah is telling me that I need somebody to help me. In other words, I have a life, I have goals, I have things that I need out of life. So just like in a business, you need a secretary, right? A person, in terms of his own personal life, also needs a helper. The person needs a helper, and therefore, just like uh, when you're looking for a secretary, you will look for a very, a very um, convincing resume. I begin writing my resume of what it is that I'm looking for in a wife. What am I looking for? She has to be. So, she has to look so and so. She has to weigh so and so. She has to. She has to be intelligent, sensitive. This, that and we create for ourselves a long list. That list is created by a lot of things that either I have thought or not thought about, but things that I believe are the utopia for me. A lot of the ideas are not even my ideas, but they're ideas that I've gotten from friends that have discussed dates with me. And what they look up to and what is important to them, all of a sudden I begin incorporating it, and sometimes we even incorporate some of the things that we look for in relationships from something as silly as the TV. But we get, uh, we, we, are, we are supplied with uh, what it is that would be um, a very interesting resume, one that is worth not filing away but investigating. We make a long list. Now, I'm not saying that when a person entertains developing a relationship with another individual that they shouldn't know who the other individual is about and get a sense of what the other person is about. What I'm talking about is an attitude. The attitude that I am out over here to serve myself. I need somebody to help me and therefore I'm going to try to get the most qualified person for me. In other words, I'm out there for me. I'm looking for what it is, you know, it's my time, I deserve a helpmate. God said by virtue of the passages in the Bible that I have a legitimate right to look for, for, the, for the best resume in the world in terms of a relationship, and I'm out to look for that. Now, obviously, nobody is interested in bursting their bubble, so they write a very long, glorious list, very often terribly unrealistic, to get all of those qualifications in one individual, and then they proceed to looking for that individual. 
okay? And because they are so determined that you deserve it and this is what you need and this is what you have to have, they move into a relationship trying to believe and trying to see that the person that they are becoming involved in and the person that they will ultimately make the selection with is that perfect princess that I was waiting for. She came my way. I'll wait for her, but when she comes, she, come, she comes my way. And this is, ex this is everything that I ever wanted. Now, when we go into marriage with that kind of an attitude, when we go into it with the attitude that I need uh, qualifications 1 through 30, all of them uncompromisable to begin with, and it's all because this is what I deserve and this is what I need. So very often what happens is that a person develop, begins to develop a relationship with another person, believes that a lot of those qualities are there, becomes blind to the fact that every individual has certain deficiencies, and then goes into deepening the relationship and making a commitment for marriage. What happens, though, is that very soon after marriage, living in close quarters with that other individual, all of a sudden I realize, number one, that everything that I believe the other person to be, it's not all there. And number two, a lot of the things that I never saw before that do bother me all of a sudden are there. And my whole mindset is upset. My, uh, my mindset was that I need to get a qualified helpmate and I had these and these requirements. Well, she's not performing for me. She's not doing what I'm expecting. She's failed at my... In other words, I hired her, okay, to use the term, to, to, to use the term loosely. I hired her. She's not doing what I expected. Out! Okay? <laughs> Finished. And that's the end of the relationship. But obviously, it's not so easy like just out. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of feeling. There were a lot of hopes that all of a sudden become dashed all at once. And really where it starts from is that I'm opening up the relationship with the attitude of everything that's coming my way, everything that's coming to me. What is, though, the, the appropriate attitude? What is the mindset that we are to take when we look to, to get married, when we look to have that intimate relationship with another individual? What is it? If it's not this, so what is it? Seemingly, this is the most logical. <clears throat> Before saying what it is, I think that the point is very clear about what I said up to this point. It's important to go into a relationship with your eyes open. That's the first thing. Don't fool yourself. If there's something that, that seems to be nudging away, there's something that's glaring at you, but you want to not see it because there are other features that are there that are important to you. We have a tendency to push things off, shove them under, under the carpet. We have a feeling that there's something that's not right. Maybe it is something that will say that the relationship is not right. Maybe sometimes it's not, but we have a tendency of trying to see it the way we would like to see it. And even if we have certain nudging questions, certain things that are egging away at us, we have a tendency to try to push it away. And we tell ourselves that we're glorious human beings, trying to push away the negative things that we seem to see in the other person. So the first thing is, 
let us go into a relationship with our eyes open, knowing that there is no individual that is perfect, not yourself and not anybody else that you're going to meet. The question is, what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses? Are the strengths the, one that, the ones that I can be attracted to? Are the weaknesses the ones that are to be compromised or overcome? Are they ones that are deterrents to a meaningful relationship? Do I just go crazy when she behaves in such a way, or vice versa, or when he behaves in such a way? So that's the first thing, going into the relationship knowing. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that a person has to be negative, and a person has to say when they're going out on their date, okay, I see your good qualities, but by darn it, I'm very disturbed because I don't see anything negative yet. Please tell me something negative about you. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm saying is that it's important to have one's antennas up and to be able to be totally open to everything so that we don't go into a relationship with, with, you know, with stars, you know, with, you know, like this is the most wonderful thing in the world that we can... I very often, when people come and talk to me about, about uh, a relationship that's going on, I very often ask, what is the major feature that you're attracted to? And what is the major feature that you have a problem with? And if a person says there's no problems, I suggest that he goes out longer before making a commitment for marriage. Because every person has, you know, every person's got a mishigas, every person's got a weakness, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's better to know about it and to go in it with your eyes open beforehand and know what it is and know how it can be dealt with as opposed to waking up, you know, a day later and realizing, oh, what did I do? You know. Okay, but what is, what would be the proper attitude other than looking for the deficiencies in another person, realistically, what is a more proper attitude and perspective in the developing of the relationship? <laughs> we have to ask ourselves a number of questions, and I know that what I'm going to say now is going to be very disturbing. Okay, It's going to be disturbing, but it has to be said because it's, after everything is said and done, it's the reality of our lives. The questions that we have to ask ourselves are the following. First of all, God is capable of providing us with that which we need. So therefore, when God created first man and then viewed the situation and said, no, he needs a helper, God certainly could have made man in a way that he didn't need a helper. God could have made man self-sufficient. The notion that even if God would have made man self-sufficient, but you still need somebody to cook for you, is utter nonsense. That's not the basis of a relationship. The Torah tells us that in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, first man, together with his wife Chava, enjoyed the angels preparing breakfast, lunch, and supper for them. So she wasn't cooking. Right? So when God said, He needs somebody to help, it didn't mean to prepare supper. It must have meant something else. And obviously, the point is very clear that if God merely was worried about the logistics, man can't manage by himself, he won't know how to put on his tie or things of that nature, which tie to put on in the morning, God could have made man in a way that he could figure those things out. Secondly, even if for some reason God wanted man to depend, be dependent upon another individual as a helper, 
Why did that helper have to be so darn different? Why did it have to be the opposite sex, which by definition, if we like it or not, men and women do have differences in the way they think, in the way they approach things, in their level of emotions, the way they make judgments about things. So God, even if you have to give me a helper, why couldn't you give me a helper that is of the same mind and thinking process? I have to start trying to figure out what she meant and what she feels, and vice versa is also true. I'm not saying it in a, in a one-sided fashion. So essentially what I'm asking is, first of all, God could have created us self-sufficient, and if God for some reason didn't want us to be self-sufficient, maybe for the reasons of populating the world, certainly God could have created a world in which the personalities of my helper would be identical to mine as opposed to so different from mine. So these are two basic questions. And the answer to both these questions <coughs> really lies in understanding the significance of what a relationship is all about. The significance of a relationship lies in, the fa in one fact. The essence of God, and this is a little philosophy, but we'll get back down to earth soon, the essence of God is his oneness. He's one. There's a oneness to God. The nature of the spiritual essence of God is that he's not torn between different things. Fragmentation, pieces, however we under categorization, all of that is the world of the physical. But the essence of God, being a perfect spiritual essence, is an essence that is whole and echad and is one and is one. And what our Kabbalistic literature teaches us is that for man to have any true, authentic relationship with himself, herself, and God, they have to be able to reach a level of oneness. They have to be able to reach a level of oneness within themselves. They have to be able to reach a level of oneness with another individual. In order to appreciate God, in order to elevate oneself to a level of having a relationship with God, one must work on this oneness concept, the unity concept. That's what man needs. And there is no way that a person can have a true relationship with God if God is essentially a one being and man is 13 different things running in different directions. The two just don't have any compatibility. The nature of the relationship that man has with God is in man finding a oneness within himself. By when, when he finds a certain sense of oneness, security, peace, togetherness within himself, then he's on the wavelength of relating to God. He can have a relationship with God. He can understand God. He can appreciate God. He wa he'll want to strive towards God. And all of this will give him a certain sense of fulfillment and happiness in the process. <clears throat> the, our literature says that God says, I can't live in a place where there's disunity and this, this, this harmony. Because that's the antithesis of God's existence. God is one places where it, there is the opposite of that, God can't be there. There is, in fact, an interesting story that the Talmud tells about Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, 
that Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma walked in, once walked into a synagogue and he saw a raging dispute going on, which is not uncommon in synagogues, a raging dispute going on. And after analyzing what it was all about and the hatreds and the disunity that existed between the people, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma said, I fear that this place will one day become a place of worship, but not a Jewish one. And the Talmud goes on to say that, sure enough, years later, the place became a place of idol worship, became a per place of foreign worship. What's being communicated by this story? What's being communicated by this story is that the presence of God in any kind of real way in our lives doesn't begin, doesn't begin if a person doesn't have a oneness. Now, what do I mean when I say that a person doesn't have a oneness? What is that supposed to mean? In very practical terms, not in philosophical terms, we started touching with this in philosophical terms last night, but in very practical terms, what it has to do with, it has a lot to do with basic personality traits. Basic ones. A person has to have a certain degree of pride on the one hand and humility on the other hand. A person has to be able to develop a sensitivity for another individual, caring for another individual. There are certain basic character traits that I have to have within myself in order to create a oneness. A person that is dominated by selfishness and it's what can I have and what can I get and what can I have and what can and this is what's coming to me and this is this person owes it to me and I'm a, a person that lives like for instance I'm just using that as an example that person is always going to be torn he's always going to be dragged in many many different directions while on the other hand a person that can have a position in this world knowing that they have to receive but that there's an important role that we play in this world to be able to give to be able to share, to be able to understand, and that the person disciplines his character in that way, that's what cre creates a oneness. I, there's a oneness that's created within myself, and that oneness can then be extended into relationships. Now, the reality is that very often people say the following thing. I'm a very peaceful person. I'm one with myself. I have no problems with myself. None whatsoever. All of my troubles came when I started getting involved with the relationship. With myself, I never fought. Okay? So it's not my fault. It's the other person's fault. But obviously, we know that this is ridiculous. The reason why the challenge of oneness never came up was precisely because you weren't presented with having to live with another individual. You only had to live with yourself. So there's never any conflict in living with yourself, basically, whatever you want, go and get it. Whatever it is that you feel, do it. There's no conflict, there's no second opinion that you have to deal with. So the reason that we very often think, yeah, sure, I'm a very good person, I'm a very good character, is because I was never presented with the challenge of having to deal with another individual. But when I am presented with the challenge and I can't handle it, what it usually means is that I never did the job before. And because I never did the job when I was single, now when I go into this relationship, I'm having the difficulties of stuff that I never dealt with before. 
The idea that all of a sudden new stuff comes up when we get into relationships is nonsense. The stuff that comes up in relationships usually brings out problems that were always there but were never dealt with before because I wasn't presented. Nobody, nobody put me into the position. Nobody boxed me into the corner to have to deal with it. But now when there's another individual, all of a sudden it looms in that kind of a way. <clears throat> so essentially what I'm saying, to get it back to the discussion of relationships, is that God purposely created man to need a helper. And God purposely created man to need a helper that has a different mind and has a different way of looking and thinking and feeling about different things. Why? To present the challenge of learning to become one. That's precisely why God did it. Now, I know that this is a mind-boggling kind of a concept because most of us, when we approach marriage, say the following thing to ourselves. It's got to fit like a shoe. And if it doesn't fit like a shoe, then I got myself into something which was wrong. And even if I try to keep the marriage together, it's patch-up work. But the very fact that I have to exert any kind of an effort to make it work is indicative of the fact that you're trying to make a bad thing better. You're trying to improve something that really wasn't meant to be. This is utterly false from a Jewish perspective. From a Jewish perspective, the fact that problems can arise, that there are issues that have to be dealt with, that communications can be very intense and sometimes painful, is not an indication that this wasn't the right vivek, that this wasn't the right one. This isn't what the angels were calling out 40 days before I was born. The notion that it's got to fit smooth, without a hitch, and nothing ever comes up in the relationship, and if something does come up, it's, it's, it's just proving to me that I made a mistake. This is not correct. Now, some of us would be inclined to believe that because we go into it with the attitude, she's got to be there for me. He's got to be exactly what I want because this is my helper, and if, if this person is not my helper, so by definition, I picked the wrong secretary. I picked the wrong administrator. But that's not the point. The point of marriage from a Jewish perspective is, is that a person is not challenged to develop character-wise until he's answerable to another individual that's preciously close. You live under one roof. You share the same table. You're in the same place. If, if, if she can't carry out the garbage you do, and if you can't, she does, you have to share everything, and you have to be everything for to the other person in that kind of a relationship. That's when the person becomes challenged. Now, if the other person would be of the same mind and thinking and feeling and emotion, it wouldn't be a challenge. It only becomes a challenge precisely because of the diversity of, of thinking, feeling, emotion, and, and the way people think about it. What, is it. what does it demand of me? Well, let's give a list. First of all, it demands savlanis. It, it presses me to be a tolerant person. I can't be tolerant if I'm an arrogant person. So it presses me to deal with my arrogance. So, it, so the first thing I need is savlanus. I need, I need to, to be a tolerant person, which means I need to be 
to a certain degree, have a certain measure of humility about myself. Number two, hakaras hatov. I have to be a person that will be able to say thank you and will be able to express appreciation. Because if you try to get involved in a relationship where you will not nurture the relationship with appreciation for what is done with you, you're going the wrong direction. It's not going to work. Because people need to be nurtured, people need to be appreciated, and if you're not in the position because you're up high someplace to say thank you to anybody, and very often we forget to say thank you to the ones that we need to the most, our husbands and our wives. That's crucial. But that also requires a certain amount of humility. Because if I'm a very arrogant person, why should I say thank you? That was her job. Why should I say thank you? That's, that's, that's what he's supposed to do. Well, appreciation has nothing to do with what a person's supposed to do. A person might be sup- supposed to do this or that, but after everything is said and done, the person has done something for you. And you received something. And if you received something, you have to show appreciation for it if you're a mensch. You have to show some form of appreciation. And there are many different ways of showing appreciation, by reciprocating and doing something. That's one way of showing appreciation. By saying something, there are different ways of showing appreciation. But the relationship must be nurtured. The notion, for instance, that after we're happily married, I'll give you an example, for 20 years, or 30 years, and we're happily married, and, and we're two lovebirds, that then we don't have to nurture each other is also nonsense. Let me give you an example of this. When the angel came to Abraham at the ripe young age of 99 years old to tell him that next year he was going to have a child, the angel asked Abraham, where is Sarah? Where is your wife Sarah? Now the angel knew where Sarah was. But the angel wanted that Avram should say that she's inside, she's in the tent, She's very modest. She doesn't run out until she needs to go out. Her place is a very modest place. And the Malach wanted that Abraham should say she's Ba'ohel, Sarah Ba'ohel. Why? So the Rashi tells us because the Malach wanted to, to, to give Avram a sense of appreciation for his, for his wife. Now you scratch your head. If Avram didn't have an appreciation for his wife by the time... He was 99 years old and having been married to Sarah for tens of years, what's the point then? But what do we see? What we see there is a very clear thing, that no matter how old we are and how long we are together, no matter how much we know about each other, in terms of how we appreciate each other, it's important to show appreciation. And we're going to talk about that later also. I'm talking about showing appreciation in terms of character development. understanding another individual feeling for the other individual that has to break the self-centeredness of a person to let go of oneself or what one is thinking about and to really become personally involved and to feel with the other person so that the other person doesn't feel that they're alone also requires a selflessness So there are many different aspects that we are forced into because of the relationship. But what is the ultimate that is trying to be created from all of these things? The ultimate that's that's trying to be created from all of these things is that the person is developing and the person is growing 
by virtue of the challenges of having to understand the other person. And that's what God wanted. God wanted that the person should grow in his oneness. You know, when we talk about all of this spiritual stuff that God blesses the marriage and all of this, you know, all of this stuff, like what does it mean? You know what it means, God blesses the marriage and all of this and spirituality in marriage? What it means is being a mensch with the other person, feeling the other person, understanding the other person, giving to the other person, listening to the other person. That's the spirituality. Spirituality isn't any, anything else. It's not hot and cold spells. Spirituality is a, a personality that is a mensch with another individual. And we can become challenged that way. As long as we're by ourselves, we're not necessarily challenged that way. But when we're in a marriage situation, we are. Now, let me make an interesting point here, which is an important point to make. <clears throat> How does God view the importance of the, of the relationship of husband-wife? Our Jewish law seems to say that that is the ultimate relationship that man can develop. That's the ultimate relationship. Why? The proof being the following. The Torah says that it comes a point in people's lives that they leave mom and dad, and they have to become one with their spouse. And from this, Halacha learns that if your mother tells you to, that she wants you to mow her lawn, and your wife says, I want to go to the theater, or I want you to take me shopping, you did not turn to your wife and say, sorry, I have to mow the lawn for my mom. That's not what you do. The Torah says, means that she comes first. What happened to Kibbut Avei? Did it just go out of the window, respecting and honoring one's mother and father? Just go straight out the window? No, it doesn't go out the window. But what the Torah is telling us is that our obligation is to put all of our energies in a priority in developing a oneness. Oneness is not developed between parent and child. Now that sounds shocking, right? But it's not. Because after everything is said and done, the, the deepest relationship between a parent and a child is because the parent is a parent and the child is a child. So the child loves the parent because the parent is a parent. The parent loves the child because the, the child is a child. So by definition, they're different. And each one loves the other because of the position of parent or child. That's, that's not echad. That's not one. My, a parent, a child that looks at the parent and says, you are my peer, is in trouble. And a ch parent that looks at a child and says, you are my peer, is also in trouble. Right? That's not oneness. The only situation where a relationship is truly oneness is where you get two individuals that are basically peers and they learn to live as one. And therefore, the Torah says that the priorities, the greatest challenge that you have, yeah, a parent-child relationship is also a very difficult one to do the right way. But after everything is said and done, you have one thing that you always have to keep in mind. It's a parent, so what can I do? So you've got to let go because it's a parent. But when you're talking about the, the husband-wife relationship, I have to let go, not because I owe it. I have to let go because I have to be a mensch. And I'm, 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 I'm working towards becoming one with another, with another individual. <coughs> now, 
parenthetically, this opens up uh, a different discussion, which I'm not going to get into in great detail this, uh, this evening, uh, certainly not this evening, but it will come up when we talk about roles in marriage. What the piece of material that I just mentioned suggests to us is that a true relationship of husband and wife should not become a mother-child relationship. Right? The, idea, the idea that the husband goes into the relationship looking at the wife to become a second mother is, is a distortion of the, the one relationship that has to be created in marriage. Or vice versa, if the wife looks at the husband to become the father that she never had or something like that, that's also a mistake. Because if one establishes the parameters of the relationship uh, as a mother-child or father-daughter relationship, by definition, you're introducing that which is not going to allow a oneness. Oneness means that both are worthwhile givers to each other and receivers from each other. One being in a dependent child-parent relationship is not a oneness situation. And when one sees their role as a parent to the other one, that's also not oneness. That's avoiding the issue of oneness. That one's coming in very dependent and the other one is coming in uh, very overly giving or whatever ever have you, but that's not oneness. Oneness is to give, but the ability to be able to receive. Oneness is that what compels us to be with each other is more on this, on this, uh, on this point and then I'll gladly open up to questions. <clears throat> now, let's move a little bit further ahead with this attitude. What does this attitude talk about? What this attitude talks about is that when I approach marriage and when I approach a relationship, I'm not approaching it with, I'm perfect, I'm whatever I'm going to be in life, and now I need somebody to help me with whoever I am in life. And let's see if this person measures up to it. That's not what the attitude is from a Jewish perspective. From a Jewish perspective, I recognize the fact that I'm being challenged to, to be able to share life with another person and to create a oneness. And that oneness is not just with the other person, but it's a oneness within myself, because if inside I'm very torn between many different things, I will not be able to make a relationship with another person work either. So therefore, let me give you an example of the difference that this makes. If a person goes into a relationship knowing that the, the days and the weeks and the months and the years of the relationship is going to help, is going to help and is going to challenge me to grow, all right, each time something comes up, okay, I have to review it in that perspective. Let me give you an example. Let's say you had a rip-roaring fight with your spouse. Rip-roaring. Uh, one issue went into another issue, and then you started hitting, hitting below the belt, and you just said, say, saying things for the purpose of hurting the other person. Well, you know, when we get into fights, we sometimes bring into a fight things that are totally unrelated. If we could take the kitchen sink and throw it at the other person, we would too. 
and very often it's just to, to be able to, so to speak, send out the missiles to be able to destroy the other person. <coughs> when a person is finished with it and says, I really showed her, or I really gave it to him, or the way it's said in psychological terms, I stood up to him or to her, or however it's said, a person has to retreat and ask himself or herself one question. Have I become more of a mensch from what has just happened or less of a mensch? Now that's a mindset that we don't live with. Do I, when I go through a, a spat with another individual, when it's all over, what I'm usually doing is I'm right and they're wrong and I'm right and I'm right for this reason, I'm right for that reason, and I try to solidify my position, rationalize my position that I shouldn't feel bad. What I'm saying right now is let go of trying to defend yourself and ask yourself one question. The way that I dealt with it, even if I was 100% right, did I lower myself by how I dealt with the situation? Or was, did I deal with the situation in a, in a way that demanded what something good of me to come out. Now, the person can look back at it and say to themselves, well, all in all, I was right. But there were a few things that I said that were terribly hurtful, that were unrelated, that would not produce any good results. Why did I say it? Was I dragged in? Was, did I lower myself to say it because I didn't have the discipline or the way of communicating it like a mensch? So I had to destroy the other person instead of going through the pain of crystallizing my own pain and communicating it? And ultimately, ultimately, that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Because who comes out of it right and who comes out of it wrong is not as important as how we come out of it. The question is, how do we come out? How do we come out? And from a Jewish perspective, if a person knows that essentially they were right, but they handled the whole thing wrong, okay, they immediately have to correct the situation. They can't go to sleep and say, well, I was right anyway. So even though I did it the wrong way, tough luck. The Jew can't live with that. The Jew has to live with the idea that everything that happens in his life is a challenge to grow. And if I blew it over here, though I was right, I failed. And if I failed, there's no way that this relationship is going to work either. Because relationships work when I, ex I demand of myself that personality growth of being the ultimate mensch. And maybe if you'd be the ultimate mensch, it would be a whole different ballgame. Uh, if you analyze it for a moment, it is that way. Because let's say a person lowers themselves to talk back to the other person the way they spoke. If you can talk to me like that, I can talk to you like that. Right? But what does it do? What it does is it compromises who you are and then you function on that level that you just compromised yourself. Is that going to make you one again? That'll never make you one again. Not only will it not make you one again, but it'll like, make you less than where, where you started off. You're going to come out of it less than what you were before. What I'm saying is that it's precisely being right that creates some of the biggest challenges in personality development. If, if I'm wrong, a big kunst to shut up. 
a big kunst not to, 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 to talk inappropriately. But it's precisely when I think that I might be right. Okay, I'm right. But what is it that's really bothering me? Okay? Am I just going to act something out? Or am I going to try to crystallize what's bothering me? Am I scared to say what's bothering me? Because very often what happens when people just act out feelings instead of saying feelings, they are very, they're, they're very dramatic. And the other person doesn't necessarily pick up the hurt or the pain but picks up the insult and picks up the offense of the dramatic display. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. You know, there's a lot talked about in terms of child abuse, wife beating. It's constantly in the news in many different ways. And most of society looks at the ugliness of child abuse and wife beating and all of the rest in very social ethic kind of terms which basically means is that you are a human being, your child is not your property, and therefore he has his own life, and you're not allowed to hurt his life. Or your wife is a, a human being, and you don't have a right to hurt her as a human being. So the way that it's looked at is a very social ethic kind of a way. You want to do, whatever you want to do to yourself, go ahead and do it to yourself. But you don't have a right to, infl to inflict d pain or hurt on another individual. That's not your right. Every person has a right to live, so you have a right to live for yourself, but you don't have a right to take it away from somebody else. Do whatever you want to yourself, but don't, do, don't hurt somebody else. That is not a Jewish perspective. The ugliest part of hurting another individual is not just the social ethic aspect, the other person has a right to existence and you're taking it away from them. The ugliest part is that when we communicate with another person with force, what we have just stripped ourselves of is all human uniqueness. Because human uniqueness is the mind, the heart, the communication of bringing the heart and mind together and expressing one's, one's feeling. And when a person lets go of that and just acts out something, what they're doing is they're diminishing that which they were gifted with. And that, so in other words, it's not only that they're hurting another person, but they're demoralizing their own selves. They're hurting their own selves. Let's stop here and I'll take some questions. There you go. Um, I, I've heard it said that there was one person in the Gemara that referred to his wife as Bitsi, my daughter. How does that come into, if this is true, because I heard it, I never read it. If this is true, how does that fit in with what you were saying that there there's no element of that father. Okay. Let's, let's, um, let's explain something, and This is a, an interesting question. I'm not familiar with that Gemara, but let's, let's make a distinction in a remark that I made. And I said it the way I did because I wanted to bring this issue up a little bit. <coughs> I wasn't saying, I wasn't saying when I said that 
a relationship cannot be a parent-child relationship that that we sometimes identify our spouse as our father or our mother. I don't mean that. Very often, very often, um, a wife will look to her husband and want to respect her husband in ways that she respects her father. In other words, the the the. the uh, in other words, uh, a person can have an image of their father, which is a very strong image as a person's growing up. A manly image, a deciding image, never a loving image, um, having a direction, leading the family in a direction, and so on and so forth. There are many fatherly aspects. You know, when a person gets married, they want to see those fatherly kinds of aspects in their husband, and vice versa. There is a lot of, 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 for instance, warmth, sensitivity, caring that a man would like to see in his wife. So there is, there is the, 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 the idea that we, we want to be able to look up to our husbands like we looked up to our fathers. We want to be able to feel cared for by our, by our wives as we were cared for by our mothers. There is that. And there's nothing wrong with that, and we're going to learn when we get to the, to the session that deals with roles in marriage, that it is critical for each one to be sensitive to the other person's need for that. For instance, let me give you an example of what I mean by that, instead of just being very, very uh, vague about it. When a person gets involved in something and he loses complete control okay he loses control and he really okay the expression in english i'm not i'm not terribly comfortable with it but freaks out okay very often you hurt yourself terribly by that because you diminish your image in your in your in your wife's mind now you might be doing it for all kinds of legitimate reasons but she looks at you and she thinks, if not consciously, subconsciously, look what I married. It's very important for each individual to, to want to be what the other person needs to see in this person. There's no question about that. And very often, psychologically, there are many things that one individual resists about another individual, not on logical levels, but simply because this is not what I was envisioning this isn't what I wanted to look up to in a person, in a husband, or in a wife. And it's not really that there's anything sp necessarily wrong with what the person is doing, but this isn't the kind of an image that I was looking for. That's definitely true. But what I'm talking about is that beyond that, creating the relationship of a dependency, of one being dependent on the other, where it's a one-way street, one is giving and the other one is receiving, and that kind of, that's a very unhealthy thing because that's not a oneness. That's a, that's a relationship that's, that's, that's thriving on lack instead of on the wholesomeness that each one can give to the other. That's what I'm talking about, and that, that shouldn't be. So he could have referred, there could have been a reference to BT, but that was in terms of a, a, an emotional need that was being served, but not in the sense of dependency. Bernie. If you carry this teaching to the extreme, then it could be very easy to get married. Because as long as 
that the other party is not objectionable, so really objectionable for whatever reason, and you look at it as a challenge to, you know, every every step is a challenge. He just keeps being confronted by this challenge. Pick someone who's not objectionable, who's reasonably attractive, and go for it. But that isn't how it works. Okay. Uh, it's a good question. What you're asking is a good question, and let's try to put it into... Uh, in other words, I expressed the idea that I did today in terms of marriage. In other words, essentially the bottom line of what I said today is that marriage is not the fulfillment of me, but it, marriage is a growth process. That's essentially the bottom line of everything that I said. I said it in its most extreme form in the presentation simply to offset the uh, the attitude that we have, which is very much the reverse of it. The truth of the matter is that we also have to be realistic. We also have to be realistic about where a relationship can work and where it can't. Let me explain what I'm saying. What I'm saying is like this. If a person has a whole host of deficiencies, okay, so I say, wow, Baruch Hashem, I got a wife with 30 deficiencies, or I got a husband with 30 deficiencies. That means that if I stick at this, for the next 30 years, I'm going to go straight to Olam Haba. I don't know about Olam Hazet, I don't know about this world, but next world I'll certainly have. Right? That's not what I'm talking about. Because after everything is said and done, how does a person really be able to deal with, with, with the deficiencies, realistically. Let's talk practically. Okay? You just go and you learn some musr, you learn an ethical book for a half hour, say, I won't care about it, I won't... Nonsense. It doesn't work. The training that a person has to go through is to look at the whole person. That's the training. I have to be able to look at the whole person. And seeing the whole person be able to take some of the nonsense with all of the good stuff, like we all are. The, the mistake that we make is that when we find something negative in another person, we are tempted to zero in on that one negative thing, and in view of that negative thing, I don't care whatever else you are, it ain't worth a, a nickel. If this is wrong with you, everything else doesn't count. We have a way of focusing in on the negative and canceling out the whole rest of the person. What we're talking about this evening is the training of being able to look at the whole person and being able to swallow on the things that might even irk me a little bit or be able to try to learn how to handle them and constructively try to change them in the different ways that they can be changed because there is what that is worth working for because the person as a whole is a worthwhile person. But... If my, sum, my analysis is that the person as a whole is not for me, so then I'm never going to have the motivation to, to be able to deal with the, 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 the particular aspects that rub me the wrong way. In other words, I'll be able to deal, I'll tr be able to be patient, I'll be able to be tolerant, I'll, I'll cool it, I'll learn how to communicate in constructive ways. I'll learn to be patient. I'll learn to wait for things to change. I'll try to help the person change without making the person feel inadequate. All of those things are possible because I know after the whole thing is over that there's lots to love there. There's lots to be with there. 
and it's worth it for that. And I would want that that person should do that with me as well. But if in the sum total of the person, this is just not for me, I can't see myself being attracted to this person, liking this person even for the good things, this is just not my cup of tea, so to speak, so then that it's not, then it's not, a, then it's not the right shidduch. Okay. Do you follow what I'm saying? So what No, well, hopefully you try to find out if the totality of the person is one that you would really like to share your life with. After you make the decision that this is somebody that I'd like to share my life with, I walk into it with my eyes open, knowing what the deficiencies are, and being motivated to, to either live with them or change them constructively, and so on and so forth, because the relationship is worth it. Okay? But to go into it with all the all, with every everything on your list, no, is going to be a disaster. That's not going to work. I mean, in in the next class, next week's class, we're going to deal specifically with dating and courtship. What to what to what what are we looking for? What are we looking to develop in the relationship? In the early stages of courtship, in the later stages of courtship, how does it differ from the secular? Uh, secular view or the secular method of dating and courtship and there we're going to get into a lot of the, the things that you're talking about. In other words, what am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to see? And those kinds of things. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> this is really a, a, a major, major um, discussion, which uh, is goes through a lot of our literature, but let's take as an example. Let's just take as one example a person that is is confronted with being tolerant, having to be tolerant, a person that's confronted with having to be patient, a person that's confronted with having to give. Take those three things as an example. What does the person have to go through? The person has to go through having a more realistic perspective of who they are themselves. I'm not so who knows what that you can't ask me for something. I'm not who knows what that something cannot be expected of me. I'm not who knows what that I don't have any time. Now, a person that's worked those kinds of things out and has time for other people and has patience for other people by his very nature, the demands of the relationship with God will be able to, to be realistic for this person because his view of himself is not an overblown view. You know, the same way that we're impatient with a request that another individual makes, okay, if it comes from arrogance and because everything is mine and nothing is the other person's, we're going to have difficulty in, in, a, in a real set sense of commitment towards God too. Just because he spells his name with a G is not going to make me more patient. And it's not going to make me feel a sense of needing to understand the request. In other words, a, a person that's a monster with other individuals, doesn't want to understand, doesn't want to be patient, doesn't want to be giving, will not be able to turn the button off and all of a sudden become an angel in his relationship with God. It doesn't work. What we are with other people is what we are with God. The notion that, oh, God's different. 
but the question is who we are inside. And if inside we have this tremendously overblown view of what we are, and therefore we, we snap at people, we have no time for people, we're not considerate of people, so when it comes to the demands of a relationship with God, we have the same intolerance. We might not admit to it, but we have the same problems underneath with it. That's on a practical level. On, on deeper levels, on, on deeper levels, the breaking, the breaking of that self for the purposes of another individual opens a person up to spirituality, which is a very big discussion that, that uh, the Mekubalim speak about, that a person has to break through the shell of self-centeredness in order to find his neshama. Which is it's just a whole different subject. Which uh, you know, it is on tape. If if you want to get into it, what does character development have to do with spiritual development? They are directly linked to each other. Directly linked to each other. A person, in fact, Reb Chaim Vital asks a question. He says, if character and personality development is so important, why doesn't the Torah speak about it very specifically and directly? The Torah speaks about 613 things very directly. And character and personality development is epishmuzhed into, into one of those mitzvahs. Emulate God. God is compassionate, you be compassionate. Why shouldn't there be 10 mitzvahs, 20 mitzvahs, 30 mitzvahs that deal specifically with character and personality development? So Reb Chaim Vital says a very interesting answer. Reb Chaim Vital was the major disciple of the Ari, who was a great Makubal. And Reb Chaim Vital says, because if there would be 20, 30 mitzvahs on character development, Man would make a mistake and think that character and personality development is equal with other mitzvahs. And it's not. It's the foundation upon which other mitzvahs become possible. So if there would be, if there would be mitzvahs of character and personality development, we would equate them with mitzvahs. And Rav Chaim Vital says it, it can't be equated. It can't be equated. It's the foundation of the mitzvahs. And Rav Chaim Vital then goes on and he says an amazing thing which is important to know he says and therefore it is more important for a person or at least as important for a person to put as much care into his character development as to staying away from an Avera those are the words of Reb Chaim Vital now there's another thing once we're on Reb Chaim Vital Reb Chaim Vital was a great holy person and he said a very interesting thing about relationships which I'd like to share with you and then I'll take any other questions that there might be. Rav Chaim Vital says that after 120 years, when God wants to judge us and how well we did, so to speak, in our performance as human beings, he starts with how we were with our spouse. In other words, but you'll get the point in a moment. You'll get the, po- you'll get the point in a moment. The point, is, the point is that very often people... Are, are great people for everybody else except for their spouse. Okay? For everybody else, they're a prince and they're an angel and they're a malach and everything else. And when they come home, oh boy, they're monsters. But Chaim Vital says what you are for everybody else, if it's a contrary to what you are at home, it doesn't mean a darn thing. Because what it, do, what it then means is that everything that you're doing on the outside is because you want to, to, to give yourself a certain posture. You want to project yourself a certain way. But it's not really who you are. When God wants to decide who a person is, he asks, 
how did you talk to your wife? How did you talk to your husband? How did you talk to your children? How did you talk to the B'nai Mishpacha? And this really brings across the point because we play many roles because we want to be seen in different ways. But when the doors are closed, you know, and, uh, and then we are who we truly are, that's where the real, the real test is. There is no real formula, but what the person has to do is he has to take every experience of life and try to analyze it and understand what was right about it, what was wrong about it, how could I have done it differently. It, it's something that comes that it comes with it comes with learning, and it doesn't come easily. That's what I meant when I said that marriage is a growth process. People grow together if that's the, the essence of it. While if you walk into the marriage, I need, I need a partner, I need somebody to help me, and this is the resume. Well, if you fit, it's good, and if you don't, I get somebody else. You know, it's, it's a totally different mindset. In other words, what I'm saying is that marriage becomes a very introspective process as opposed to a review of another person's performance. That's the point. Um, yeah. How does a person judge if they never got married? What merits or faults would be looked upon? How is um, relationships with okay. people? Okay. Let, let's explain something. When, when Reb Chaim Vital says that a person is, is judged by how he behaved at home, what that means is that that's the litmus test of what he's truly developed inside and what parts of him he was just acting. That's the litmus test. But God doesn't need it. Reb Chaim Vital expresses it that way to show the person, who are you fooling? If you're a prince in the outside world and a monster at home, who are you fooling? So it's a way of showing it up to the person. But in the reality, God knows what the person has developed. It's, this is, just becomes a way of showing it up to the person himself. But God knows what a person truly did develop in and what he didn't develop in. So coming back to the whole idea that if I'm right, you know, I'm going to put all the cards on the table and just let it all hang out, quote-unquote, and, and the idea of compromise is an indication of weakness. Now when we review everything that we went through, it's not so simple anymore. I might be right, but I have to understand where the other person's coming from. Maybe the other person's not ready. Maybe the person needs time to adjust. Maybe the other person needs time to make that change. And that would be the compromise. Being understanding and understanding the other person's the place where the other person is deficient and giving the person the time and space to work it out is a form of compromise, but it's not a sign of weakness. Quite to the contrary, it's a sign of strength. A sign of weakness is when a person says, I have to have it exactly the way I want it. And if I don't have it exactly the way I want it, I don't want it. That's weakness. Saying to oneself that I, I, I have the patience of waiting till it will be the way I want it is an indication of strength. So therefore, very often, there are situations where you want things to change in your partner. Right? And you very often want them to change a lot faster than they can realistically change. 
You have to ask yourself, if I'd be in that position, could I change that fast? Do you, do you, do you follow what I'm saying? And that's, that's, that's a major issue in how we look at the other individual, how we assess the other individual. Jane, you had a question. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if I didn't understand, like, I mean, I heard what you were saying, but there's something that this is like... Um, Try to express yeah. it. Okay. If another person, if you feel that another person like consistently hurting you over and over and over again, like the more that the more of a smarter you are, the more you grow. You know? No. I mean, that's no. What, okay. Like where the okay, okay. And Let I don't know why I'm feeling that way, but okay. I, mean, I don't okay. know if I'm being defensive or okay. if there is such a, a thing. Okay. You know what I think that the answer to that question is. I think that the answer to that question is that the, 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 the ABC, the absolute must for a relationship, even within the context that we described this evening, has to be that that is equally, that it is mutually shared. In other words, both people have to have the understanding that they are striving to grow. If one person is striving to grow and the other person is the person that I described at the beginning of the class, let me see your resume and we'll, we'll, we'll mark your performance every week and if you fail three weeks in a row, it's out with you. So then obviously, in other words, there has to be a mutual understanding that there's a growth process and an attempt being made. And I have to be able to see that that person is attempting. The fact that the person might not necessarily make great advances right away Okay, that needs to be seriously, you have to seriously be, but both have, to, exactly, exactly. Otherwise, there's no way, there's no way, absolutely, no way. That's the, uh, that's the olive phase, no way. Stewie. Uh, not exactly. <laughs> not exactly. Uh, there is, well, I thought there was. Let's be realistic, Stewie. Okay. No, that's not what I'm saying. No, there is. No, no. <laughs> 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 the two of you are not. <laughs> uh, L let me try to put it in a perspective. I see that some people are struggling with this a little bit. Let me try to put it into a perspective a little bit. Um, the nature of two people being two people, as similar as they might be to each other, will have challenges. Okay? In other words, the notion 
that if we have a checklist of a hundred things that we b both are equal to, we both like the outdoors, we both like uh, opera, we both like um, I don't know what. So, you know, the fact that you can can make a list of all of the things that we're compatible in, we share the same hobbies and the in same interests and all of that. As as much as we're the same, we're different. As much as we're the same, we're different. And sooner or later, sooner or later, that the fact that we are two different human beings is going to present some kind of a challenge somewhere. Obviously, if there are a lot of things that we're equal in and we enjoy a lot of things, we avoid the confrontation because it, the, the point doesn't come up so easily because we're so... But that's not what creates oneness. In other words, if we can match each other in terms of our interests, so therefore we never con confront a difference, that doesn't create oneness. That's like a person that lives by himself. So he never has to confront any challenge of oneness. But the point that I'm making is don't look for trouble. Don't look for a person that's opposite who you are. Look for a person that you're attracted to for who the person is. There'll be enough differences that have to be worked out without you looking for them. And the other answer to the question, why God created another person that thinks differently, okay. that's going to make, okay. make that trouble. Okay. We'll, okay. <laughs> Obviously, what we spoke about this evening is not that God didn't create man and woman as different as they are simply for their sake of being different. There's a concept which we will talk about, I, I believe it'll come up either in the third, third or fourth lecture, about the complementation that exists of a man complementing uh, the wife and the wife complementing the husband. There is a concept of complementation. Okay? It's not just you're different and I have to be able to live with the difference. There's complementation that exists there as well. But to, to live, to, you know, to, for people to complement each other also needs character development. I have to be willing to receive. I have to be willing to be able to appreciate the person for what the person is and that I'm not. Do you follow what I'm saying? Complementation doesn't happen automatically either. Complementation has to have a lot of honesty and frankness and the ability to learn and the ability to receive and the ability to give, but to give in a very sensitive way so that the other person doesn't feel inadequate. That's a very crucial thing. God gives every person what he needs in terms of challenges and in terms of things that are easier. But God gives each person what he needs. When it says that uh, a person has his, his zivug, that means what he needs. Not only in terms of what fits smoothly, but what, what will be a challenge for the person as well. Okay, I think we'll stop here. It's getting, it's getting light, unless there are burning issues. Okay. <laughs>